Not too long ago, I heard a story about a missing person. A man was reported missing, and they did not find him for months. And after many months of looking for him, they actually found him dead in his own apartment. You see, what had happened was, I mean, how can that be? You wonder, how can it take months to find him in his own apartment? Well, it turned out that he was a hoarder. And he had a stack in his apartment from floor to ceiling with stacks of old newspaper and what have you. You know, when you hear stories like that, you realize his troubles began long before he actually fell ill or whatever happened to have ended his life. Because you see, for normal people who are well-adjusted, yesterday's newspaper has no value. It's not something you want to keep around, is it? Yesterday's newspaper is trash. And in a similar way, last year's fashion, well, it's out of fashion. Last decade's technology is outdated. And last century's conventions, can you believe less than 100 years ago, uh, black people were not considered fully human? Less, uh, about 100 years ago, Uh, Women had to fight for the right to vote. So when we think about the conventions of the last century, it's not just that they strike us as irrelevant. They strike us as really wrong, don't they? And so it raises a question. If yesterday's newspaper is trash, last year's fashion is out of fashion, what can we possibly learn from a book that is 2,000 years old? You know, this book of Acts, the New Testament, is now really 2,000 years old. What can we possibly learn here? Well, it turns out quite a lot because, uh, for one, the world of Acts was very much like ours. It was a world where very few people knew about Jesus and very few people even cared about what what the Bible says. In many ways, the world of the first century Acts is our world. Not only so, in the most important ways, the people that lived in those days are just like us. You know, they worried about economy. They worked hard to put food on the table and to keep a roof over their head. They got worried and anxious when their health was not well. And when they lost loved ones to death, they mourned and they grieved. And they were just like us. And not only so, Christians in those days, you know, they, they lived in that uncomfortable space where on the one hand you believe in God and you believe in his sovereignty, but you look around, there's so much wrong in this world. And that's a very un- uncomfortable place to live in, isn't it? You believe in God, you believe in God's goodness, you believe in God's sovereignty, and yet there's so much that's wrong in the world around you and even in your life. In other words, they were just like us, and we are just like them. And that is why God's grace to them then is God's grace to us today. And so in this passage, um, I like to look at three things. And the first thing is 
the encouragement of the word, the encouragement of the word, because that is what we need, encouragement. And actually, encouragement is the key to this passage because encouragement is mentioned three times in this passage. The first time we hear about encouragement is in verse 1. We read here that after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Now, you remember from chapter 19 that Paul's ministry of the gospel was greatly successful. And through Paul's ministry, and of course, through the labors of other Christians as well, great many people turned to the Lord Jesus. And this success of the gospel financially crippled the idolatry industry. And so the people like Demetrius and and silversmiths, the craftsmen who made a living, and a very good living at that, making idols and selling them, people who produced the wares and the gears of idolatry, they were on the verge of financial ruin, and they got angry. They got angry at Paul, and they got angry at Christians. And so Demetrius turned the entire city of Ephesus against the Christians. And this passage, this chapter, picks up right after that. Do you, can you see, can you, can, you, can you realize, or can you think about how the Christians must have felt in the city of Ephesus? Do you think maybe they were just a little bit startled? Do you think maybe they were just a little bit in a shock? You see, they just survived a citywide riot, and it wasn't clear to them whether they would survive through it. And I think we can reasonably guess that they were in a tremendous state of shock, wondering, is this what's going to happen if I keep believing in Jesus? Is this what it means to believe in Jesus, to have my society, to have my community turn against me? Is this what it means to believe in Jesus, to face possible harm because I believe in Jesus? That's why they needed encouragement, and that's why Paul encouraged them. Now, how does he encourage them? I think the way that Luke presents these stories give us some clues. Um, You know that Luke wrote two books in the New Testament. The first is the Gospel according to Luke. And in the Gospel, Luke shows us how Jesus journeys to Jerusalem with his disciples. And as he journeys to Jerusalem with his disciples, he faces the, the hostile Jews plotting against him. But in the latter part of Luke's Gospel, Jesus three times predicts his suffering and how he will be betrayed into the hands of the Gentiles. And yet Luke carefully shows us how Jesus was ready to lay down his life and he was determined to finish his ministry. That's what we read in Luke's gospel. Now in Luke's Acts, Luke carefully shows us Paul's journey to Jerusalem with disciples while he faces the hostile Jews and their plot against him. 
And in, the, in this part of Acts, we hear Paul uh, three times predicting his suffering and his betrayal into the hands of the Gentiles. And Luke very carefully shows us that Paul was ready to lay down his life and finish his ministry. That is to say, when we see these details side by side, we realize that the Luke is making a point about Paul and about his ministry in that Paul is walking in Jesus' footsteps. And you know, that is the very heart of a Christian discipleship, isn't it? Because in Luke chapter 14, this is what Jesus said. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so the Christian discipleship is following our suffering and dying Lord. That's Christian discipleship. Gee, that's really encouraging, isn't it? Really, that's what Christian discipleship is? Well, thankfully, there's more. Christian discipleship, yes, it is following the suffering and the dying Lord. But you also remember how in Luke chapter 9, this is what Jesus said. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And again, in John chapter 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. What is Christian discipleship? Christian discipleship is following our suffering and dying Lord all the way to resurrection. That's the Christian discipleship, resurrection, both Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection is the encouragement that we need as we live in this uncomfortable space, on the one hand, holding on to God and His sovereignty, believing in our heart that God is good and loving, and yet seeing all around us evidence that, that appear to contradict our faith. What we need is the encouragement, encouragement that comes both from the resurrection of Jesus and the encouragement that will be our own resurrection because we follow the suffering and dying Lord all the way to resurrection. That is to say, we realize that when we look at Jesus, we see that Jesus' suffering and death were not impediments to his glory, but rather his suffering and death were the pathway to his glory and joy. Similarly, the cost of discipleship, you know, the things that we are called to leave behind, the things that we are called to sacrifice, the things that are denied to us because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we call cost of discipleship. But when we think about our Lord Jesus, we realize that the cost of discipleship is not so much a loss that we incur, but it is rather the down payment that we put down for our eternal glory and joy. 
That's the cost of discipleship. Not a loss we suffer, but a down payment. And that is why I, I told you earlier that this passage mentions encouragement three times. So the first time was in verse 1. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. And the second encouragement is in verse 2. When Paul had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Paul has only one encouragement to give, and it's the only encouragement that you need. And that's the encouragement of following our suffering and dying Lord all the way to the resurrection. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then you can face anything. If Jesus rose from the dead and he destroyed the power of death and darkness has no power over him, and if we are in Jesus, then then we can face anything. And so Paul, everywhere he went, he set before the believers the hope of Jesus' death and resurrection. So that's the encouragement of the word. The second thing we see in this passage is the encouragement of the body. The encouragement of the body. Now you remember from chapter 19 last week in verse 22, we saw how Paul sent a Timothy in Erastus to Macedonia ahead of him. And the reason he sent Timothy and Erastus, Erastus to Macedonia first was so that they could gather up the love gifts of the believers in, in Greece, the gifts that they had collected in order to relieve the suffering of the believers in Jerusalem. And so in chapter 19, Paul sent Timothy and Erastus ahead of him, and here Paul himself has arrived in Macedonia, and he's about to leave for Jerusalem via Syria. And then a plot against him was discovered. At first, he was, uh, he was going to sail, uh, get on a boat, get on a ship, and sail to Syria. But then he discovered the Jews' plot against him. You know, it's a dangerous place to be on a ship when the passengers are uh, determined to harm you. And so Paul changes his plans, and he travels over land, at least for this part of the journey. But you notice that Paul, as he makes his way to Syria, ultimately aiming for Jerusalem, he is accompanied by at least eight disciples that we hear by name. And my guess is that possibly and very likely their wives may have been present also, and perhaps even their children. And Luke actually tells us the names of the eight disciples and where they are from. From the region of Macedonia, we have Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, and Luke. From the regions of Galatia, we have Gaius and Timothy. From the regions of Asia, that part of the world that we call Turkey now, from Ephesus, we have Tychicus and Trophimus. These are the, the regions that Paul visited during his three missionary trips. And from each one of his three missionary trips, uh, there were converts to the Lord, and these men had gathered themselves around Paul. And so what we see here is that these eight disciples, at minimum, uh, they were united in their love for the poor in Jerusalem because they are all bringing their gifts to relieve 
the poor saints in Jerusalem. They were also united in their missionary zeal, and they were united in their friendship with Paul. Now let me ask you a question. Can you think of anyone who is better versed in Scripture, who is more full of the Spirit and stronger in zeal for the gospel than Paul? I suppose that's possible. I suppose it's possible to find someone who knows scriptures better than Paul, who had more of God's spirit upon him and who has stronger zeal for the gospel than Paul, but I think that will be very difficult. The point that I'm making is that Paul was an outstanding apostle and a believer, wasn't he? Mighty in scripture, mighty in the Holy Spirit, strong in his zeal and love for the Lord. But Paul, that Paul, was never alone. That Paul never did ministry by himself. And if you remember, he started out on his first missionary journey with Barnabas and John Mark. After that, he continued with Silas and Timothy. And along the way, we have seen a number of people come alongside Paul. And now he has these men. And so the obvious question is this. If an outstandingly gifted man like Paul needed fellowship, do we need less? You see, that's the question. And do you see here how Paul is again following Jesus' footsteps? Jesus Now, Jesus is the one answer, isn't it? The one who was mightier in spirit and scripture than Paul. Jesus, full of the Spirit's power and presence, knew the scriptures back and forth. Jesus had 12 companions. And he looked to them for fellowship and support. The Son of God valued fellowship. Can we value it less? Jesus invested himself in them. Surely we're not going to say now, Jesus, you wasted your time. Jesus, that was pointless. Jesus, that was wrong. Surely we're not going to say that here, are we? You see, what's interesting is that Luke does not say here that this fellowship was encouraging. But, you know, he doesn't have to, does he? And the thing that we have to reflect upon is this, that you and I, we are not stronger than Jesus, and we are not stronger than Paul, and we need the encouragement of fellowship far more than Jesus and Paul did. Often when we have a discussion about fellowship, sometimes that that, that discussion is couched or framed in terms of the extroverts and introverts. And the, the entire burden is often placed on the introverts. You have to become more extroverted and get on with the program and join the fellowship. That's really not the point, is it? You cannot honor God 
unless you recognize that God made some people extroverted and God made some people introverted, it's God's work. That's God's design. But at the same time, we recognize both these personality types need to grow and be challenged and be stretched and be sanctified. The point is not about having a certain personality type or to act as if you have certain personality type. But the point is to move towards people. Allow yourself to think that it is okay to be a little bit uncomfortable around people. Move towards them. Because when we do, something wonderful happens. You see, the body of Christ is greater than the sum of its parts. Let me put it this way. Ten believers bringing their humble faith and service do not add up to ten people's worth of graces. Rather, there's something amazing that happens that the body ends up being far more loving, far more gifted, and far more useful than the mere sum of its parts might suggest. Because when we come together as a body of Christ, we bring something out of each other, something that is beautiful, something that is never seen before, something that is wonderful and helpful and edifying. And that's why we need a fellowship. That's why we need to move towards people and be okay with the idea that it's okay to be uncomfortable as you move towards people. We need the encouragement of fellowship. Thirdly and lastly, it brings us to the encouragement of the feast, the encouragement of the feast. And notice here that the encouragement of the world and the encouragement of the fellowship come together in Troas. In verse 7 we read, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Oh my. <laughs> Did you note this? Christians gathered on the first day of the week, the day after the Jewish Sabbath. And you know, in those days, they didn't get Sundays off. So these believers, they gathered after their workday. They gathered after their workday to worship and to learn from Paul and to break bread. The thing is, Paul kept on talking. He kept on talking. It went on and on and on and on until midnight. And Luke adds the kinds of details that only an eyewitness can provide. He says, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And I think the picture that I'm seeing in my head is, is a little space that is filled with people and it's getting stuffy inside. It's a little too warm. And so this young man, Eutychus, has an idea which actually leads to a tragedy. He sits himself on the windowsill or by the window and this young man, the word that's used for young man, it's a word that's typically used for a young person, a teenager perhaps. And this Eureka, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked 
still longer. And I can just picture him, this poor young man. You know, he probably followed his parents to this church meeting. And maybe he doesn't fully understand what's happening. And he's sitting, politely listening, until the stuffiness of the room is just too much for him. And then he falls asleep. And he was overcome by sleep. And he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, what do you suppose happened then? I have a feeling that Luke, Luke the physician, was one of the first to run to him to check for signs of life. You know, some people read this passage and they say, you know, he only appeared dead. Eutychus wasn't really dead. You know, these doctors from 2,000 years ago, what did they know? Don't be like that. Um, Luke was a physician, and the thing about our modern times is that we have uh, developed professions and careers that deal with our dead. So we don't almost ever see the dead people around us unless you work in a hospital. But in the, in, in the ancient times, in the first century Acts uh, times, as it was through most of human history, death was all around you. People are used to seeing the dead. And Luke the physician, he's seen his share of the dead. And I imagine he ran to him to check for signs of life, and he can tell this young man he's dead. And then something amazing happens. Paul took Eutychus in his arms, and like the Old Testament Elisha did, he bent over him and taking him in his arms, and he said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. That's not Paul saying, Luke, you're wrong, he's not quite dead yet. No, that's Paul saying, this boy, he is dead, but the Spirit of God has restored him. And so God raised Eutychus. And so we read in verse 12, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Now, I, I told you earlier that encouragement is explicitly mentioned three times in this passage. First time was in verse 1. Second time was in verse 2. This is the third time. They were not a little comforted because that word, that Greek word, translated here, comforted, it is the same word that is translated as encouragement in verses 1 and 2. It's the Greek word parakaleo, closely related to the word paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the comforter. You see, God, in his mercy and grace, raised Eutychus from the dead. He restored his life. And these believers, they were not a little comforted. And so do you see what is happening here? God encouraged and he comforted the believers with resurrection. And then we read in verse 11 that when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a while longer until daybreak, a long while until daybreak, and so departed. Even the death could not stop him from talking. Or maybe a better way of putting it is, now that God has raised Eutychus from the dead, how can Paul stop 
proclaiming the hope of Jesus Christ. And my guess is that after this event, no one felt drowsy in that room. You see, they just saw gospel hope coming alive in front of them. The hope not only of Jesus' resurrection, but our resurrection in him. That Jesus who raised the dead, he has power over death. And when he raised Eutychus, they saw with their own eyes the hope in Jesus Christ made alive. And I hope you notice what this passage says about the practice of the early Christians. Early Christians met together on the first day of the week, the day after Jewish Sabbath, for Lord's Supper. Notice, uh, notice that the breaking of the bread happened after midnight, which is not the usual time for regular meals. The breaking of the bread happened after midnight and as a part of Paul's ministry of the word. We're talking about communion here. We're talking about the Lord's Supper. So Paul, it seems it was his practice to proclaim the word of God and break bread with the believers because the bread and the cup spiritually fed the believers with the grace of Jesus' suffering and death. But there was more. Communion nourished the believers with the promise of resurrection. And communion nourished the believers with Jesus' promise of eternal feast. You see, that's what you and I need. Living as we do in this uncomfortable space where we are caught, it seems, and it feels like so often, doesn't it? On the one hand, we believe God, we cling to Him, we, we hold His promises dear, we believe in His sovereignty, we know that He is good, and yet, look around you. The world is a mess. And sometimes there's so much chaos even in your life, so much pain. And the Lord's Supper is the encouragement that God gives to you and to me because it is in the bread of the cup, bread and the cup, that we are reminded that we follow the Lord Jesus who suffered and died, but that we follow him all the way to resurrection. The bread and the cup remind us on the one hand of Jesus' death on the cross and on the other hand his promise and his invitation that we will sit with him for eternity and feast with him, we will be glorified and know eternal joy. The bread and the cup, they tell us that Jesus destroyed death, that darkness has no power over him. Jesus rose. And if Jesus rose from the dead, you can face anything. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your instruction and for your word, and we pray that as we have heard and as our souls were nourished from your word, we pray that the bread and the cup that we are about to receive would point our eyes and lift up our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive from him once again the hope that never fades, the promises that can never change so that we may receive the grace and the strength and joy 
to face the many trials of this life and persevere. Persevere not with regret, not with resignation, but persevere with joy and with hope until we sit with you in glory. So please bless us now as we receive your broken body and your shed blood. And lift us up, O oh Lord. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.